1: Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Catherine Abel, author of Fiction, a Philosophical Analysis, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Thanks for talking with us today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Let's dive right in. In your book, your aim is to give a unified account of several philosophical problems related to fiction. And here um, we mean fiction in a, in a broad sense. We can talk about that as we, we go on. Um, before we dive in, why is this an important philosophical topic? Why why should we care about fiction? What's at stake in, in our understanding of it?
0: Well, to me, one of the key issues at stake is the light it shines on communication. So um, theories of communication in philosophy of language and philosophy of mind, tend to focus on communication via assertions. Um, But when people write fiction, they do seem to communicate things to their audiences, but they're not asserting them. And I think that whereas plausible models of the communication of beliefs, uh, especially when what we're communicated isn't entirely captured by what we say, um, dr- give our background knowledge about the world an, an important role in drawing inferences about what's being communicated. And I don't think that that model works very well for fiction. So understanding fiction, uh, well, seems to require a different account of the kind of communication going on to uh, the case of assertions. And by providing an, an explanation of what's going on in fiction, I think we can shed... Light on communication more generally. Mm,
1: hmm. Okay. So we're we're going to be talking then about the role of role of inference in in uh, in what's going on today. So we'll have to keep an, keep an eye on that as we go forward and uh, think about some of the the broader applications too. Maybe we can talk about that at, at the end. Uh, so how did you get interested in these problems, though? Um, the the topic of fiction.
0: Well, previously I'd been working quite a lot on pictorial representation and how the way in which pictures represent differs from the way in which language represents, and I got interested in pragmatic theories uh, of of language use um, and was interested in whether they could help understand some of how us you know we could understand how pictures. Represent by analogy with um, the pragmatics of linguistic communication, and I, I decided that we could. But then it occurred to me that that doesn't work quite so neatly when what the picture represents isn't something that purports to reflect the world in any way. So uh, my interest in fiction generally grew from that, I suppose.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you're you're thinking about cases like where you're looking at abstract art or or things like that
0: no um more cases so i was sort of interested only in the case of representational pictures but um so one key theory uh one one influential idea in the philosophy of depiction is that whereas uh, a word represents what it represents because of a convention a picture represents what it represents because it resembles that thing um but different pictures resemble their objects in different ways. And I thought maybe we, inference plays a role in determining which respects of resemblance are at issue or governing any particular particular instance of depiction. Um, so what I have in mind, the problem cases for the account of, of depiction I came up with are cases where you have a picture of a fairy um, because or something that doesn't exist because Although you know we, we have the notion of a fairy in, 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 in culture broadly, uh, there isn't any actual thing to be resembled there
1: I see and so, so that then of course you might think it tracks with some of these problems in fiction where there isn't actually uh, any any fairy that's being talked about in in the fiction
0: right yeah yeah we're talking gotcha. about a fairy it seems to be a specific fairy but there's no actual in the world
1: I see okay and so we'll and we'll talk about this as, as we go on that your account of fiction then is is quite broad you're not just concerned with say um, novels but you're thinking about fiction in a in a broader sense maybe you could say a little bit about what you mean by fiction then
0: I suppose by fiction um, I mean any practice any communicative practice, whatever medium it exploits that non defectively represents things as being other than things are it doesn't purport to track mm-hmm. the way the world is the way things are in the world would be a better mm-hmm. way of
1: putting it mm-hmm. and so that would mean not just um, fictional novels with fictional characters but perhaps poetry plays uh, even in, in a sense visual art pieces then could count as fiction under this definition. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, although I, I don't explore those cases in enormous detail in the book. That's partly because the existing literature is very heavily geared towards linguistic fictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know, the implications for my view are probably clearest in the case of fiction films. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as the as the sort of paradigm non linguistic case.
1: I see, gotcha. Well, we can talk about that once we get a bit clearer on what your your thesis is. And so maybe take our readers through just the most simple statement possible of your thesis, and we can we can dig down into the details. What is it that you're arguing for in this book?
0: Uh, so I'm arguing that fiction is essentially an institutional social practice um, and that fictive communication is possible because that practice consists in a set of rules and those rules govern the contents um, of works of fiction.
1: Okay. So we've got a few pieces in here. Uh, Let's start with the idea of institutions. So what is an institution and why is it important that you think about fictions in terms of institutions?
0: Okay, so there are varying accounts in the philosophy of social science about what an institution is. Um, but for the purposes of this book, I've kind of gone with what seems to me uh, <laughs> the a sort of fairly uncontentious view that has at least the f- fewest problematic philosophical commitments, which is a view outlined by Francesco Guala, which uh, construes um, institutions as, as consisting in systems of regulative rules, so rules that regulate our behaviour. Uh, and what's important about those rules and what makes them rules of an institution is that they provide Equilibrium solutions to coordination problems. And coordination problems are problems of interdependent decision making where what one agent decides to do depends on what she thinks another agent um, is going to do, and vice versa. So, a classic example of a coordination problem would be deciding on what side of the road to drive. Um, what side of the road I decide to drive on depends on what side of the road I think you're going to drive on because I want to drive on the side where I won't crash into you. And similarly, you want to drive on the same side of the road as me. Um, And those coordination problems pose an epistemological problem insofar as it looks like the decision-making can't get going until – I don't know what decision I'm going to make until I know what decision you're going to make. You don't know what decision you're going to make until you know what decision I'm going to make. And the idea is that rules of institutions provide an external um, correlation device that we can both appeal to. And because because it's publicly accessible, it facilitates our lighting on a solution that we're both happy with, one that's the best solution that either of us could achieve by acting alone.
1: And so it's in some sense a bit arbitrary whether we drive on the right or the left, but one, there's a convention about it that's publicly accessible so that everyone can can solve this problem and we don't crash into one another. Exactly. So, so then in the case of fictions, how, how do we understand um, fictions in terms of these These coordination problems. I mean, it's not like we're crashing into one another in in, in books or things. What's the what's the problem coordination problem there? What's going on?
0: Uh, Okay, so it's widely held and seems relatively uncontentious to say that there's an intimate link between fiction and the imagination, Um, and I think that link is that works of fiction seek to communicate imaginings um now any form of communication poses a coordination problem so if you think of coordination sorry if you think of communication as being a a process in which say if I'm communicating something to you I have a mental state um I want to communicate that mental state to you and I succeed if I get you to entertain a mental state of the same type um, and the way I do that is by producing some stimulus that will prompt you to ha- to entertain that mental state. Um, so communication poses a coordination problem in that what stimulus I produce in order to elicit the mental state in you depends on what mental state I think you're going to form in response to my stimulus and what mental state you form in response to my stimulus assuming you are interested in communicating with me too depends on what mental state of mind you think prompted me to produce that stimulus so we have a similar situation to the deciding on which side of the road to drive problem Um, so and my i guess my further contention is that the communication of imaginings which i think is in some broad sense the function of what's the function of the institution of fiction, um, poses distinct coordination problems to the communication of beliefs because the kinds of solutions, equilibrium solutions, we can come up with uh, to the coordination problems uh, posed by the communication of beliefs won't solve the problems posed by the communication of imaginings.
1: Can you give an example of that? What, what would be a contrasting case of uh, solving a, a belief problem, communicate communi- sorry, coordination problem versus uh, one where you're you're supposed to imagine something?
0: Yeah, sure. So, lots of our communication uh, doesn't involve producing a stimulus, the literal meaning of which captures what we want to communicate. Uh, so, lots of communication is indirect. Uh, so, for example, if you ask me, you know, at l- late at night, where can I get a bottle of water this late at night? And I say to you, there's a petrol station around the corner. Um, what I'm communicating to you is that you can get a, a bottle of water at the petrol station. But, that, you know, that's not contained in the meanings of the words I utter. Rather, you draw on, you make an inference based on your knowledge of the world, that petrol stations are, are often sell drinks, um, that they're very often open late at night, uh, to work out that that's what I'm intending to communicate. Uh, but, and communication in fiction is often indirect in this way too. So, you um, you know, consider the opening lines of Jane Austen's novel Pride and Prejudice, it was a truth universally acknowledged that a, I can't remember exactly how it goes, single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. Well, you know, that's an ironic statement. She It's not part of the content of Pride and Prejudice that actually every single man in that position does want a wife. (laughs) Um, Rather, um, you know, Perhaps certain people are apt to hope that that's the case. So, there we see there seems to be an, a role of, for inference, but we can't straightforwardly draw on our knowledge about how the world really is in working out what Jane Austen's communicating there or mm-hmm. in fiction gen- generally, because there's no reason to assume that it's going to conform with the way the world is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, there seems to be. Uh, at least those sort of indirect instances of communication, where what's being communicated is, is an imagining rather than belief, seem to pose a distinctive problem.
1: Gotcha. So so basically, um, we can draw on sort of commonplace understandings about the, the way the world is to draw inferences about petrol stations because we have experiences with them selling bottles of water. But in a work of fiction, um, there... Even though you know we know when Jane Austen was writing, and we can draw sort of biographical inferences about her as a person in the time she's writing, and we we just don't know that she's referring to the world as it is in order to get us to imagine something. It, it could be a different kind of a world, so we can't make the, the same kind of inference. Is that that roughly tracking?
0: Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah.
1: Okay, so then let's circle back to the the idea of institutions. How do how does uh, fiction as an institution resolve this problem? How are we able to then imagine uh-huh. what it is that the author wants us to imagine?
0: So the the key um, result or upshot of appealing to or construing fiction as an institution um, is is well, one implication is that the contents of author's fictive utterances, the utterances by which they produce works of fiction, are determined uh, not by their intentions um, but by the rules of the institution. So um, consider other sorts of speech acts that are sort of essentially institutional. Um, So an act of marrying. Um, so a priest or a celebrant utters a certain form of words in front of a couple who meets certain conditions uh, and is a, and if, if the right form of words is uttered, the couple is married, no matter what the priest or celebrant intends. I'm sure you can imagine a very artificial case in which they didn't intend to marry them. Um, of course, you know, competent authors intentionally exploit the rules of the institution of fiction to communicate exactly what they intended to communicate, but it's ultimately the rules that determine the contents of their fictive utterances rather than their intentions. So appeal to an institu- the institution of fiction helps solve the coordination problem by um, providing rules that serve to match up um, imaginings with stimuli that elicit those imaginings in audiences.
1: hmm So, so then thinking back to the analogy with the, the, uh, the driving, right, on the sides of the road, um, if I want to know which side of the road to drive on, I consult a a rule book in the particular country that I'm in. Um, But, you know, I I was an English undergraduate and they didn't hand us a rule book when we started uh, my degree to tell me what it was that these authors meant. So um, how do we understand what the content is of these, these fictive utterances? How do we understand what these conventions are?
0: Yeah, so they're not written down anywhere. I mean, maybe in some books of literary criticism, some of them get picked up on. But we have a tacit grasp of them, just as we have a tacit grasp of of the rules of English Um, and we pick up on them because of a sort of salience acquired through exposure to instances of fiction so certain ways of correlating fictions with contents become salient to us and we follow and those sorts of patterns that are salient um Result in the sort of tacit grasp of these rules is the claim. Mm.
1: Can Can you give us an example of of how that might work for a, a particular fictive utterance, and how we might acquire those those tacit understandings of the the conventions?
0: Uh, I don't know if I can uh, give an account of how we. Uh, all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a go. Okay. Um, <laughs> so. so Think about works of literary fiction written for English-speaking audiences. Um, now, I could write a novel for such an audience that is set in a non-English-speaking country, uh, yet I represent all the characters in my novel as speaking english words and sentences now audiences don't it doesn't even occur to them to understand um, my fiction as being such that you know all these non-english speaking characters can miraculously speak english to, to one another you know we just take it to be the case that they are Saying the characters are saying words with whatever the meanings are of the English words I represent their utterances using, but in the foreign language at issue. So, so those kinds of practices are sort of second nature to us. We're not really aware of doing it. Um, so that's the kind of thing I have in mind.
1: I see. I see. So, so it would be sort of a, a surprise or. Uh, a, a deviation maybe from that convention if you start reading a, a, a work and it, some strange language is, is presented to you in a way that's opaque, right? A science fiction novel where some alien language is presented on the page. You think, well, that's, you know, that's a little bit surprising because usually we, we just have it sort of uh, presented to us transparently and we just, we just assume this is representing whatever language is being being spoken there. Okay, so so that's a, and, and I'm sure there's a lot that we could think about in terms of how we identify, uh, how we come to know what these um, conventions are tacitly. That's a that's a big epistemic problem. But uh, let's let's move on just to thinking about the structure of fictive content, because as I understand your your book, you're you're arguing for a a, a view on which fictive content has two levels of content uh, and so we're t- we've been talking about convention but there's also inference to the best explanation involved here so maybe you can walk us through the the content of, um, of fictive utterances
0: oh of course yeah so it would be helpful here to provide a little bit of background to the debate i suppose so um so a sort of what amounts almost to an orthodoxy in um, existing philosophical discussions of fiction is that um, the content of works of fiction far outstrips uh, what authors communicate by their fictive utterances. So, for example, um, it's sometimes thought that it's part of the Content of Fielding's Tom Jones that Tom has blood in his veins, has a liver, sweats, sleeps, you know, eats several meals a day, etc. Even though very little of this is ever addressed by um, Fielding's fictive utterances. Um, So the thought motivating that is that sometimes it's clear that what is, that fictions have content beyond those of their author's individual fictive utterances. So, you know, in a murder mystery sometimes things are implied but not ever um, actually stated. We have to kind of draw those inferences Um, and so this thought that, but it just seems to me almost a nonsense to say that fictions have a form of content that authors are completely unaware of and audiences very seldom pick up on and moreover we don't take them to have somehow failed to grasp Tom Jones if they don't ascribe to Tom, the property of having a liver. Um, so this ju- this just seems an overinclusive inclusive um, conception of, of the content of fictions. So I, w- I want to argue for a much more minimal control of their content. Um, so I think authors' fit utterances can convey their contents indirectly. so as in the case of the opening lines of opening line of pride and prejudice, uh, However, whether their contents are conveyed are explicit or conveyed indirectly, the contents of f- fiction consist in the contents of fictive utterances, Certainly, but not this whole other repertoire of everything else that follows, that would be the case were things to be as those utterances represent them as being, Uh, which is the sort of orthodox view, I suppose. Um, But just restricting the contents of works of fiction to the contents of authors' fictive utterances seems a bit too narrow in the sense that it doesn't explain How uh, something could be so, you know, it doesn't accommodate the case, for example, of Henry James's *The Turn of the Screw*, in which it's it's never communicated either that the governess is delusional or that there are ghosts. But and authors, uh, sorry, audiences have to work this out for themselves. But one of those things is 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 part of the content of the fiction. but that's, it's not kind of plausibly ascribed to the contents of f- fictive utterances. Um, so I think there's an additional level of fictive content which I call interpretative fictive content, um, which is determined in a manner dramatically different from the conventional way in which the contents of authors' fictive utterances is determined.
1: Okay. So just to make sure we're getting the terminology right here, we have fictive content, uh, and that is fictive content, um, and that's fictive content of the fictive utterances.
0: No, or so is so it that
1: the fictive utterances is one content is one part of the fictive content.
0: Exactly. Yes. yes.
1: So it's the second. So you have this fictive content. Yep. And. Part of that content are these fictive utterances where what is, what, is under, what is communicated, let's put it that way, by the fictive utterances is recovered by convention. And then there's this other part of fictive content, which is interpretive. And we use inference to the best explanation to sort of work this part out, but it's not part of the fictive utterance itself. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, and the background to that view or the motivation to that view really concerns the role that authors' intentions can play in content determination. So, I mentioned earlier what I the problem with drawing on our background knowledge about the world to draw inferences about what's being communicated when what's being communicated isn't doesn't need to track the way the world is, so in the case of the communication of imaginings. And I think that problem poses a problem for claiming that the contents of author's fictive utterances are determined by their intentions, hence my appeal to rules. So, you know, going back to our earlier example of the communication of beliefs when i say there's a petrol station around the corner and i communicate to you that you can buy water at the petrol station at this time of night it's plausible that the that what i communicate there is determined by my intentions and i'm intentionally exploiting your background knowledge about the world to tell you that you can buy water at at the petrol station I don't think that works for imaginings because there's no background knowledge about the world I can intentionally exploit to communicate that I've been turned into an enormous insect overnight or or some outlandish content of the type that fictions routinely have. Um, So I'm basically an anti-intentionalist about the contents of fictive utterances. I take them to be determined by convention. Um, But I think it's too strong to say that authors' intentions play absolutely no role whatsoever in determining fictive content. I think they can play a role in doing so and that we can work out what their intentions are once we have uncovered a significant basic level of content, so that's the content of fictive utterances, that's the the rule-governed content. Um, And there are two different models, roughly speaking, of how we work out what other people's intentions are. So say you notice me up a tree crawling along a branch at the end of which is a kitten, Um, you are likely to ascribe to me the intention to retrieve the kitten. And, and the way that works is just inference to the best explanation. You observe my behaviour, you identify a desirable outcome of that behaviour, retrieving the kitten, and you ascribe to me the intention to achieve that outcome. Um, but notice that in the kitten case, I'm, I don't care if you can identify, ent- identify my intention at or not i'm just going about my business doing what i intend to do Um, but contrast this with the intentions involved in communication so when i say to you there's a petrol station around the corner you can't grasp what the desirable outcome of my saying that to you is until you've grasped what I intend to communicate to you so the communicative communicative intentions are usually understood to be intentions that one's intentions be recognized Uh, so when I have a communicative intention I will do everything I can to cooperate with you to make my intention obvious to you unlike in the kitten case Uh, So when I communicate to you, I draw on resources that I know are available to you and you know are available to me and that we both know are available to each other in order to produce a stimulus that will allow you to identify my intention. Um, So I don't think communication in fiction can exploit that kind of ability to identify intentions precisely because there's no mutually available background knowledge there to be exploited, nothing that can play that role. Um, However, I do think that once we know what the content of author's fictive utterances are, where that's determined independently of their intentions, we can draw inferences about why they wrote the works of fiction they did. Why did Henry James write a story about a, a governess who who thought there were ghosts? Um, but this is not. Did he did he want to suggest that the governess was delusional, or did he want to suggest that there, there really were ghosts? But this isn't trying to identify James's communicative intentions. It's just drawing ordinary inference to the best explanation on the basis of any resources available to us. Just like in the kitten up a tree case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so um, oh, sorry.
1: Go ahead. No, please go ahead. Finish.
0: I, I was yeah. just going to say so, so, there are very different processes identifying the content of fictive utterances and identifying interpretative fictive content. And identifying whether or not one as an audience succeeds in identifying interpretative fictive content depends very much on what information one has to hand about the author, about what her goals might have been, whatever. And so interpretation often fails. You know, people can understand a work of fiction. They can grasp the content of the fictive utterances um, but have no idea how to interpret it. And I think that's a moderately mm-hmm. familiar phenomenon.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you're trying to give an account of, um, in maybe in a sense, how it is that we're able to successfully coordinate and imagine with these authors, as we read the, as we read the, the works, there's some aspect, some, um, the fictive utterance is, is intelligible to us. So to take the example of Kafka's metamorphosis, we read the first sentence and it's, it's clear to us that, um, Gregor Samsa has awoken and has been transformed into a gigantic insect. And we get that based on not having to, um, think about why it is that kafka has written that way or what he's indirectly trying to communicate which would be an appeal to intentions but we're just uh, essentially understanding the plain uh, meaning of the the words on the page but then what we do in the second level is we try and think about well why would he have stated this this weird thing and then we draw inferences to the best explanation is that the idea
0: uh, not quite, because no. okay. I because I think uh, the content of his fictive utterance doesn't involve isn't just the words stated on on the mm-hmm. page or, or or in that case it plausibly is but needn't be right. So mm-hmm. we need okay. to appeal to these extra linguistic rules of fiction to get to the content that then enables us to draw inference, the best explanation about what further reasons he would have for. Uh, Writing a story about someone who gets transformed into an insect.
1: Okay, so in the Gregor Samsa case, the um, these conventions about fictions they play a role because ordinarily people aren't transformed into a gigantic insect, but in the context of a fiction, we might take that as a, a true statement. Is that? I'm, tr- I'm just trying to track where where the conventions play a role into. Uh,
0: okay, great. So, I mean. Think about all the different fictions, or all the, all the different things one might communicate in fiction by using the very sentence that Kafka uses in metamorphosis. Um, it, in the context of a, of a different fiction, it would be possible for an author writing those lines just to communicate that the character wakes up with a dreadful hangover, right? They seem have got their brown domed chest and their hard, you know, whatever. Um, so we need to know reading Kafka's story that we're to take those um, words to be, to, we're to take them literally in that case. And that seems to depend on our knowledge of the kind of genre in question there, for example. So... so the rules telling us, given the genre of the work, take these words literally, but in the context of a different fiction, exactly the same sentence might function to communicate a different content.
1: I see. Okay. And so I guess maybe where I was going was towards a direction that some of the, the people you're engaging with would go, which is something like, well, I what I do is, is I, I just think what is coherent with the rest of the the utterances in the in the work uh and that's that's how i understand sort of the intention with which kafka has written this this sentence and you're saying no that's not what's happening here we're 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 appealing to genre and convention at this level we're not appealing to kafka's intention that's right okay gotcha Well, let's in the time we have left, let's move on to to another important problem, um, which maybe we can uh, can illustrate too with the Gregor Samsa example, which is, well, what about these weird entities that we're talking about in fictions? So um, there is no person, Gregor Samsa, um, and and certainly there is no person who has been transformed into a gigantic insect. But uh, it seems like I can say true and false things about him, um, like that he woke up in the morning and suddenly became a gigantic insect. And that would be a, a true statement in some way. Um, but a lot of people have, have argued you can't say true or false things uh, about non-existent entities. So there's been various uh, attempts to try and resolve this problem in different ways. And in your book, you argue, in fact, that fictional entities do exist, which might strike some people as an, as an implausible, claim because you know I can't go out in the world and, and see Gregor Samsa, um, but that's not exactly what you're after, right? So in what sense do you think fictional entities exist and how does this help us understand what's going on in, in fiction?
0: Uh, great question. Thanks. So fictional entities exist in just the way that things like marriages and corporations exist. They're social objects Uh, whose existence or whose creation is enabled by the rules of fiction institutions. So just as the institution of marriage enables priests and celebrants to perform acts of marrying that bring into existence marriages or, um, you know, there are institutional institutional rules that enable people to create Corporations just by filing articles of incorporation. So too, I argue, authors can create fict- fictive utterances. Uh, so can create fictional entities by their fictive utterances, because the rules of the institution of fiction include what I call reference fiction, fixing rules that specify conditions under which their utterances. Bring fictional entities into existence. But it's not like someone brings into, or that Kafka brought into existence a person, Gregor Samsa, or indeed a giant insect. Um, Rather, what he brought into existence was a social entity. Um, And the thought is that whatever reservations one has about bringing fictional entities. Into existence, they they're sort of they're fairly thin uh, ontologically speaking. Um, so they're nothing really over and above. You don't for for their re- existence, one does not require anything over and above the existence of the institutional rules
1: mm-hmm. and
0: the existence of the utterances that serve to create them.
1: Okay. So so then we need to understand um, at what point they're created. Um, do they continue to exist then as as long as there are, are books in print is it how do, how does this sort of institutional creation of these entities um, happen? We can we can end marriages by some sort of a a, a a declaration of divorce, and so we can in some sense end that entity. Um, can we end Sherlock Holmes's existence or is he is he sort of just around with us? Uh,
0: we can't intentionally end Sherlock Holmes's existence in the way that we can intentionally end a marriage. Um, but nevertheless, there are conditions under which Sherlock Holmes could go out of existence. Um, so social entities, these – so. The reason why we can't end um, Sherlock Holmes' existence by some sort of additional act is that it just doesn't help further the purpose of the institution of fiction or the communication of imaginings to incorporate a rule that would enable that. It, so, so, So no such rule has emerged. Nevertheless, the rules themselves need to be in place in order for social entities to exist. So if our practices were to change dramatically such that we no longer had any practice of fiction, it seems to me that under those conditions fictional entities would cease to exist. But, um, but unless that happens, I think once created they continue to exist.
1: mm mm-hmm. Let's let's think about individuation too, because I mean this is this is something that comes up um, when when we're thinking. Not you know we can take Sherlock Holmes as an example, but this comes up in lots of contexts. There's there's Sherlock Holmes in the newest uh, Netflix film about her, his sister Enola. There's Sherlock Holmes that's played in a different movie. Um, there's Sherlock Holmes in the BBC, right? There's Sherlock Holmes in the first story that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. There Sherlock Holmes in, in follow-up stories and spin-offs. spinoffs. Um, would you say these are all the same fictional entity? Are they different fictional entities? How do we individuate uh, fictional entities? I mean, I can distinguish my marriage from another person's marriage um, very clearly. Can we do this for <laughs> fictional entities?
0: Yeah, but the, the ways in which they get distinguished um, might not – so the way – because on my view they actually exist. <laughs> the way we just the way we individuate them is does not always track the way they are to be individuated uh, within the context of a given fiction. So way that so it doesn't always track the way that fictionally they're individuated. Um, so on my view to create a fictional entity one has to use a singular term, whether that's a name or not, without referring to any existing entity from a perspective internal to a work of fiction. So whether or not, let me just sort of explain that a bit with reference to your Sherlock Holmes examples. So whether or not someone who creates a TV series about Sherlock Holmes Creates a new fictional entity or not depends on whether they are in they are intentionally referring to the Sherlock Holmes of any pre-existing fiction as from within from a perspective internal to that fiction or not. Um, so if I just create a TV version of the Conan Doyle novels or actually versions are kind of could go one way or the other, but if a a continuation, additional stories um, that take for granted all the things that according to the novels by Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes did, then I'm not creating a new fictional entity. I'm just Mm -hmm. writing new stories about the same one.
1: Mm -hmm. Would it then be possible that these fictional entities – could have um, sort of contradictory properties. Like you write a further further story in, intending to con- convey further facts about this Sherlock Holmes, but um, you, I don't know I, I know, I guess they talk about how he doesn't have his shoe size mentioned in the, the novels or the stories, but let's say his shoe size is, is eight in one story. And then later we say the shoe size is, is 10. Um, you can't have both eight and 10, but they're they're asserting both things about the the same entity plausibly. Is that would you just say then that there's properties that uh, are in tension, but they're still able to be um, predicated of the same entity?
0: Yeah. So I would deny. I don't think there's anything philosophically problematic about that. And the reason mm-hmm. I don't think it's problematic is that I don't think the fictional entity Sherlock Holmes actually has the property of having size 10 feet. Um, Sherlock Holmes doesn't actually have feet. Fictionally, <laughs> fictionally, Sherlock Holmes has feet. And fictionally, all kinds of contradictions can... I mean, you know, a single story can ascribe contradictory properties to a fictional entity. So there's no additional problem posed by separate stories doing so.
1: Gotcha. Well, let's... Um... I want to get to this related problem then here of how we talk about fictional entities. So, um, in in one sense, what you just said is well, fictionally Sherlock Holmes uh, has uh, this size feet. Fictionally, he has these other size feet. We obviously he doesn't have doesn't have feet. He doesn't. He's not a physically embodied um, sort of entity. So I can say things about Sherlock Holmes, uh, and there are things that I can say about him maybe not his shoe size, but other things which I can get right and wrong. Um, and and so this is a very um, compelling approach that you, you're giving because the reason I can get things right or wrong is because I'm talking about a fictional entity that has fictional properties or, or, or fictionally has properties. Let me, I think, better way to say it. Um, but then doesn't it seem like this this overgenerates, right? Because then can't I just appeal to lots of things like you know, Pegasus or Phlogiston or a, a sort of earlier scientific theories that we've scientifically um, theorized entities that we've we've abandoned and say, well, the reason I can get things right or wrong about them is because those, those entities exist. Uh, is, is there an overgeneration problem here? How, how do you think about that?
0: Uh, no, I don't think there is. And I'll explain mm-hmm. to you why I don't think... Pegasus exists, or I don't think Vulcan exists. Um, I mean, some, I'm not the only person who thinks that uh, fictional entities exist, and some people who think that fictional entities exist think that um, consistency demands (laughs) that they also acknowledge the existence of mythical entities and failed scientific posits, etc. But I think there's a fundamental difference here. Because the existence of fictional entities, for me, is enabled by the rules of an institution with a given purpose. Um, You know, the purpose of the institution of fiction is to enable the communication of imaginings. And you could see how it could facilitate that purpose to have rules that enable the creation of fictional entities because... Having fictional entities to which to, to refer enables people to communicate specific imaginings about things that independently of those rules wouldn't exist. But let's take the case of failed scientific posits. Um, the institution of science <laughs> doesn't I'm ha- you know I'm happy to say that there is a there might be an institution of science with its own rules. Um, but it doesn't seem to follow that it would incorporate rules that enable the creation of theoretical entities because, after all, the purpose of science is something like getting to the t- truth of how the world really is and it and it wouldn't further that purpose to have such rules. So you can, when you say things like um, Vul- Vulcan, Vulcan, uh, it was a mythical uh, a planet that was supposed to orbit between Mercury and the sun. Um, in some sense, you're saying something like uh, Sherlock Holmes is an exceptionally intelligent detective able to solve the most difficult of crimes. But in neither case are you picking out actual attributes. So in the case of... Vulcan, you're best understood as talking about how um, Le Verrier thought that things were. Um, and in the but so there's no, I think all that, that can adequately be accommodated. The reason why, without positing Vulcan, the reason why I think we need actually to have the entity Sherlock Holmes um, or why I talk sort of about fictional entities provides evidence for their existence, is that that's not the only way in which we talk about Sherlock Holmes. We say things like Sherlock Holmes is an exceptionally able detective, and when we do that we're 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 talking about Sherlock Holmes from a perspective internal to the works of fiction about Sherlock Holmes. but we can also say things like... <clears throat> Excuse me, Sherlock Holmes is a fictional entity created by Arthur Conan Doyle, and that seems to be straightforwardly true, so fictional entities ha- actually have properties such as being created by Arthur Conan Doyle or things like being an engaging character, um, inspiring many. <laughs> Um,
1: further fictions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. But we don't have to say something like, um, Vulcan is a is a uh, is a posit made, it, like, we don't have to appeal to to um, an actual uh, entity of Vulcan in order to explain the fact that this particular scientist, mistakenly thought that there was an entity which explained certain observances. There's a sort of a different, um, different direction of fit in his, his statements. He's trying to describe how things are. And in in fictions, we're trying the utterances are trying to get us to uh, imagine a world. So there's, there's a a difference there. These seems to be like two, two differences that you're, you're drawing attention to. Is that correct? That's
0: right. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, um, I want to. There's a lot more we could um, could talk about here. Um, how you carve out the difference between fiction and nonfiction. How you deal with fictions within a fiction, and of course, we haven't talked in great detail about some of your uh, interlocutors in this book. But throughout the the work, you engage. Um, A lot with names that will be familiar to anyone who knows anything about philosophy of of fiction, Walton and Stock and others. So folks who are interested in in those details, I think they they can go to read the book. But maybe last question here, we've kind of started out with this, the motivation for this book, as as you noted, started with thinking about um, problems in representation in um, visual arts. Uh, and so I know this isn't the explicit content of, of your work. You don't really draw the applications here. But you do note that it can, you know, your account can be applied to pictorial utterances, you would call them, like films, um, maybe paintings and sculptures and things. Um, maybe you could just say a little bit about, now that we understand your view, um, how you might think about applying your analysis beyond, you um, Novels and linguistic fictional utterances to to other kinds of utterances.
0: Yeah, I, I so I think that the way in which the account extends to other such utterances is, is most obvious in the case of of uh, pictorial works that that are narrative in form, so films or plays or so on. Um, and the idea again is that when we watch a film we don't take what's we don't always take what's represented um on screen to be exactly the way things are in the film so we and the thought is that that's because there are just as there are um, rules that govern the practice of linguists writing linguistic fiction there are Rules that govern film fictions too, such that you know when you have voiceovers in which narrators describe events, um, we don't take them to be addressing an audience or even to be speaking out loud necessarily um, and things things that are shown on screen can be part of false recollections. Um, such that things didn't really occur that way. And so the thought is all those indirect ways of communicating a story in a film can be understood as enabled by rules of fiction institutions.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then so something like the fact that you make rapid cuts from one scene to another from one vantage point of the the camera to another, but yet there's continuity between one camera angle and the other camera angle. We we take this as sort of a continuous unfolding of time or something like that. That would be just a convention about how we're understanding the the presentation of the uh, of what's what's going on visually in the screen.
0: Yeah, what, exactly. A good yeah, example. Mm-hmm.
1: So, what about then um, the interpretive fictive content? So, when I'm I'm looking at a, a film, um, what would what would be the sort of the inference to the best explanation that we're doing?
0: Well, I guess it would be depend on the film, but exactly, you know, what is, so when we draw inferences about characters, motivations, for example, I think that's often um, aimed at identifying interpretive fictive content. Mm -hmm.
1: Gotcha. Great. Well, I think that's, um, that's really interesting. And I think the, um, there's there's a lot there that you know we could we could think and talk about in terms of um, how these conventions going back to our earlier comments or, or conversation, um, how these conventions come about, how we can break with convention and, and yet manage to to communicate things in you know new art forms there's there's a there's a lot here I think that is is interesting and, and worth thinking about. Um, I really enjoyed enjoyed, uh, the book, enjoyed the thinking about, um, these ideas along, along with you in, in the, in the book. Um, and anybody listening, will have a link up to the, um, the OUP website for, for anybody who's interested in looking at it. Um, let's, let's kind of close out here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Are you continuing with a question of, um, of fiction? What are you thinking about? Uh,
0: thanks. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm starting to think very carefully about the notions of medium and style. Um, so I talk a bit in the book about the role that genre can play, but it seems to me that medium and style are, can influence how we in, understand and interpret works, but perhaps their role is a bit different. So in the case of um, style, it seems to be, it can be sensitive to features of the individual artist. Um, and, and, and I guess my contention is to get at style first, you probably have to get at medium. Um, so that's what I'm starting to try to do now.
1: Mm-hmm. And, this, and this is a, a, a general uh, problem, not specific, again, to something like uh, linguistic fiction, but a more general question about medium and style more broadly. Is that correct
0: yeah so it seems to me that the way a style manifests could depend heavily on the medium so you could you know for example consider picasso's ceramics versus picasso's picasso's drawings it seems to be same style manifested differently in different media so i'm kind of interested in the interactions of the two, and yeah, not specifically focusing on fiction, but just ways in which the way we represent the world differs according to the resources on which we draw to do so.
1: Hmm. Cool. So, so this could even apply to things like philosophical style in in uh, monographs or or philosophical style <laughs> in, in, in uh, papers. If, if there is such a thing as philosophical style, that might that that might be presupposing uh, too yeah. much for at least for some of us, but, um, well, thank you, Catherine, for your time. I enjoyed it very much. And, uh, again, thank you. Yeah, no problem. The link is up on, on the website. So thanks for your time.
0: Cheers.